my daughter knew that I was going to be preaching a little bit about some of the kind of spiritual warfare that we might encounter from time to time. Uh, she's privy to some of the prep work that goes on. We have some great discussions in our living room. And so I woke up today and she gave me a little gift and it's on my desk now. And it's a little plastic name placard, almost like you would have if you had your name on your desk where you work. But it says, not today, Satan. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's a good reminder. Every day, not today, Satan. But today's Father's Day. And we're going to look at a minuscule passage with a massive meaning, and it's found in Psalm 23, just in verse 5. And actually, it's just the first half of verse 5. And you'll see why it's power-packed. How God lifts us up. I don't know about you, but most dads are reluctant to become vulnerable and share their feelings very much. You know, I know that we're encouraged to do that a lot, but most of us have subtitles running around in our heads rather than actually verbalizing what's going on there. For example, when our children are really going at it and there's another argument happening, the subtitle might say, you know, I should get hazard pay for this job because I live in a war zone. Or perhaps if he's sorting through the bills again and he says, man, I should take some swimming lessons because I'm drowning in debt. And this interest rate is killing me. Or maybe there's another little argument that starts, or discussion that breaks out between he and his spouse, and he thinks, why does everything turn into an argument? Or maybe there are some other things that just go on there. We battle some of that, we dads, sometimes, don't we? We have little inner voices in there saying things like, why am I so afraid? What am I afraid of? How come I'm so insecure going into this meeting? I know this stuff. How come there are all these little battles that come up and I feel like I'm just barely keeping my head above water? We won't say it out loud, most of us, but a lot of us feel that kind of stuff. And I think that this guy that we're going to look at today who wrote this, David, went through a lot of that stuff. And we know that because writing for him was therapeutic. And so he journaled, but he journaled in writing poetry, which became songs. And we have that in a lot of the Psalms in our Bible. So David's the guy who wrote about this stuff. And we're going to find some things that I think are going to be really encouraging to dads and men who have some of those subtitles running in the backs of their minds sometimes. Psalm 23.5. It's one tiny little power-packed bit from a six-verse psalm that has 12 different major points in it. And we're only going to look at one point today because that's all we have time for. And it's going to get warm today. So if you start to feel a little bit faint, just tell the person next to you to start fanning you with their Sunday news and we'll be okay. We have different daily battles. David's daily battles looked a little bit different than our daily battles, but we all have daily battles. Sometimes they're financial, like drowning in a sea of debt. I've had some friends that talked about how they were so close to paying off that credit card and they were getting... So excited because they were going to throw a celebration party and they were going to cut that one up because they're starting to pay down some debt. And then something goes wrong on the car and they have to get an expensive repair and it's not covered by warranty. And they think, well, we're back in it again. And it's just things like that that you feel like it's three steps forward and two back. And so there's these financial battles that we fight. Maybe it's a relational battle. Maybe you've got that person that you work with that just drives you nuts and you can't figure out how to win them over and get them on your side. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a parent, I don't know. But relational battles happen all the time. Health, our church has been praying for a couple of people who've been going through some health issues. Uh, he's got a sense of humor back though, Dennis Spickenagel. 
normally sits right over in this region. And I went into him, he had one bad day after his surgery to take off his left leg, which was becoming a detriment to him because of infections. And he said, I just really don't want any visitors on that day because he's just feeling lousy. But then the next day, I went in to see him and I said, so Dennis, how you feeling today? He goes, foot loose and fancy free. I said, I think he's feeling better. I think he's gonna be amassing a ton of jokes to throw out to people because now he's embracing the stump, as he said, and he's gonna want to have that sense of humor and he says, I'm gonna do whatever they ask me to do in physical therapy because I'm gonna beat their goals and I'm gonna be on that prosthetic device before they know it. So he's got a great attitude. Thanks for your prayers for them, by the way. Marsha, who was also in the hospital for a couple of days, fell at home, she's back home now, thankfully. But boy, they've been through it, and yet, uh, one of the nurses came in while we were there and she said, nobody told me that this was the party room because there's so much laughter and so much praise going on when people are visiting people like that, even in a hospital, after he's had a leg cut off. And so there are these health issues and battles, but they're winning the battles, fortunately. We're gonna look at this verse and then we're gonna just take it apart bit by bit because there's some wonderful things we're gonna see and a couple of surprises that I think you're gonna also encounter here. Psalm 23, five, just the first half of that verse says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It sounds familiar, hopefully, many of us have heard this, it's recited at funerals quite a bit, graveside services, it's also just one that's a very comforting thought. And in this Psalm 23, we learn that God is a God of comfort, he's good, whether he's leading us beside the still waters, or whether we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, God is still good, no matter what. And here, we're learning about a table that's prepared in the presence of enemies. Let's look at that. So what kind of table? We're gonna look at that. What kind of enemies? Who are our enemies? Who were David's enemies? Because we have to know what the verse means to them before we can accurately apply it to us. And then what's on the menu that's on the table? We'll find that out today. First of all, the very first word, you. Who is the you that he's addressing here? God, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is a copy of an invitation for Her Majesty, so it was a royal invitation to some sort of a banquet. Can you imagine getting something that looks really official in the mail, and you open it up, and it's from royalty, and it says, you are invited. I think I would perk up. I think I would pay attention, and I would probably wipe my schedule clean, and I would make it there no matter what I had to do, because that was a very important invitation. And God invites people to come to this banquet. You prepare. What does prepare indicate? Well, it means that there's some advance notice. He's been thinking about this for some time already. It's not just something that's spur of the moment. It was very well prepared. Have you ever been to a really nice banquet and you could tell the details were just, ooh, spot on. And every time you look around, you think, ooh, somebody thought about that and thought about that and that's decorated so nicely and look at that food and the colors are all just right and the proportions are great. They really put some thought into this. Why do they do that? because they want you to feel special because you're the guest, you're the honored guest. There's preparation going on to this banquet that God is inviting somebody to. You prepared a what? A banquet. The Hebrew word for this is table. He prepared a table, but it also means banquet in Hebrew. He's preparing not just any old card table or a breakfast tray or your little coffee table that you sit at when you go to uh, some cafe. This is a real banquet table. My wife and I were privileged to see food like this when we were in Israel, and we walked in at the motel the first night we were there, 
and there were just six huge tables filled with food like this. Hummus and falafels and all kinds of great things. It was amazing. And we were looking around at all the food thinking, we'll never be able to eat all this. Fortunately, there were about 200 other people in the room, so they couldn't took care of some of that, but we had plenty, and that's the kind of lush, extravagant banquet table that's indicated when they use this specific word for table. It means opulence, plenty of this stuff, abundance. You prepared a banquet for whom? For me. For me. You could each put your name in there. God's prepared a banquet for you, and you, and you, and you, and it's personal. It's a personal invitation. It's not just this big blanket thing. He's making it very personal. A banquet for me in front of. Oh, okay, what's that mean? Well, what's the difference between public and private? I have gone into some motels and you can hear that the bass is kind of making your liver quiver as you walk in. It's going boom, 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 boom. People's toupees are going And you think there's some big kind of a party going on in there behind those doors and then somebody walks out to go down the hall and you can peek in there and there's this big wedding celebration happening and everybody's hands are in the air like that just don't care. And it's happening, you know? And you're thinking, wow, that's really cool. And then the door shuts and you go, oh, well, I guess I'm not invited. So it's a private banquet. But this specific banquet says that it's a public banquet, which means that anybody can watch what's going on there. Okay, get ready for a plot twist. In front of my enemies. Wait, what? Who throws a banquet so that you can enjoy this as the honored guest in front of your enemies so that they can watch you having this banquet? What's up with that? We need to look at that because it's important. Well, where are you when you're in the presence of your enemies? You're in the midst of a battle. You're at war. And this is something that we're going to start to see that was happening back in the Sumerian areas. That's not Sumerian, it's S-U, Sumerian areas. And some of the other uh, Amalekites and the people that were surrounding Israel at the time, they had a specific thing that would happen there. We're going to see that in just a second. It's on the battlefield. That's when we need to have a banquet the most. Okay, so what kind of table is it? Banquet table. It's an opulent table. It's put on by the host who is the king himself. So that's the kind of table. Now, who are our enemies? Well, David's enemies, we have to look at his first, were literal countries. It was both a literal battle and it was spiritual for him because the nation of Israel, he was the king of Israel, were fighting these other nations and Yahweh God, who is the one true God, that's when monotheism was becoming huge, just one God, there's one God, And he was Yahweh to the Hebrew people. So when they would fight these other nations, they were also fighting people who did not believe that Yahweh was the only true God. So it was both a literal battle, but it was also spiritual. So who are our enemies? Well, there's the world around me. We know this from the New Testament. Satan who's against me and my sin nature within me. Let's look at those three for a second. The world around me, philosophies that oppose God. And man, the voices are so prevalent. There's so many of them. We just hear this cacophony of voices telling us, no, there is no God. Why are you going to all this trouble? And religion is just a troublesome thing anyway. It's just a power and control thing. There's no such thing as a real God. The voices are really prevalent today that are telling us, I'm opposed to God and you should be too. Then there's Satan against me. And let me tell you, if you love God, Satan hates you. That's where sin first entered the universe. God didn't create evil. 
He created free will beings, including angelic beings. Mike mentioned that in his little preface to our 40 days of prayer emphasis starting next week. He was talking about that there are three angels that we know of, of their names, and there are two good ones, but then there was Satan. There's this Lucifer. And there was this one angel that decided to use that free will to turn against God because he wanted to usurp God's authority, step into his place, and that's where evil began. So Satan hates anything that's aligned with God. So if all of a sudden we're starting to sidle up to God and we're realizing, oh, God loves me, well, guess who hates you? Satan does. And then there's this sinful nature within us. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter seven. There's a whole chapter dedicated to this. He's saying, man, there's this tug of war going on inside of me. I don't do the stuff that I know I should be doing. That procrastination that happens somewhere, there's a reason why that's there. There's some, somebody in the universe that would prefer for us not to get good things done. And then sometimes we do the opposite. You know, we don't do the things we should be doing and we do the things that we know we shouldn't be doing and we feel guilty about it. And so there's that sinful nature in a tug of war within us. He's saying that one is the flesh, he calls that the flesh, and the other is the spirit. And they're at war with one another. So even though if you're a child of God, you can't get snatched out of God's hands. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, but Satan would love to interrupt the fellowship that you have with him, and so there's this battle going on in our inner nature. Those are our enemies. But why does God throw the banquet in the presence of our enemies? Well, this is where we start to see something about the character of God. A banquet means communion. It means fellowship. When I go to a banquet and I sit down long enough to go through several courses, you really get to know the people around you a whole lot better. If I were going to start to get to know somebody and I said, hey, can we just go out for coffee for a minute? Well, that's one thing. That's good. You can share for a little bit, but when you've got a multi-course meal happening, you've got lots of time and the food tends to loosen us up and we feel great and the catechelamines are flowing through our system and we're thinking, you know, I'm feeling great. There's a salubrious effect that can last up to 45 minutes because of those catechelamines, according to science. And so food is good for loosening us up and making us available to get to know each other better, to become intimate, close. So a banquet means communion. So here's a king, but he wants communion and he wants it right in the middle of the battle. How odd is that? Why during a battle? Well, here's a good reason. That's when we need communion with God the most, when we're under attack. That's the one time when Satan would love to get us away from communion with God because he knows that if we're separated from there, we're easy pickings. And he doesn't want that. And so he's gonna be hauling us away, trying to keep us from having communion with God, especially when we're going through trying times. And it's gonna send a message to the enemy. This is what I talked about. The Sumerian armies around there, they used to have this habit. Psalm 511 grows right out of this sociological and political and, and warfare kind of thing that was happening back then. It reflects something the kings would do. On the night before the big battle, while they'd been having several battles, but they'd always go back to their camps and then they would sleep that next night, come up with their strategies, they'd wake up at daylight or slightly before, and then they'd go out and fight each other on the big battlefields again, like Armageddon. But look at verse 11 of chapter five of Psalms. This is the message, and the reason I chose this paraphrase is it actually captures more than just about any others this historic event that sets this up. You'll welcome us with open arms when we run for cover to you, meaning to the king's tent. Let the party last all night. Stand guard over our celebration. They would have a party for their soldiers the night before the battle. Why is that? Because they wanted to be within earshot of that enemy. 
Because what happens if the enemy hears you reveling and going, yeah, we've already won this battle. They're easy pickings. It's going to be great. We can't wait to get out there tomorrow. And they would do that on purpose because it was dehumanizing these people. It just, it destroyed everything that they had in the way of their, uh, their confidence level. My personal banquet, I've mentioned before, it was a time when I was going through a real trial. It was a financial battle. I was trying to direct this Christian organization and the donor uh, base was going down but the expenses were going up. We didn't know if we were gonna have enough money to even pay the staff the next week and I was just stressed out beyond belief. It's before I came back into the local church ministry. And I was praying and I said, I gotta open the Psalms. I gotta get in there and have some communion with God because man, I'm in a battle and I don't know what to do next. And I came across Psalm 34, 18, which says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And at that moment, it was like God was sitting, God the King was sitting right across the banquet table from me, looking at me face to face. And he's like, I got it covered. I've got your back. I'm the King. You came here on faith. You're gonna go back to Michigan on faith. We're gonna get this all sorted out. It's okay. And suddenly, I, was, I felt like celebrating. All my fear left me because I realized that God was in control, and he was. That organization is still in business today, cranking out Bible study materials and training, telling people how to do small groups well so people can come to faith in Christ. So where should we go to find our feast when we need this kind of royal reassurance? Where do we go? Two places, into God's word and into God's presence in worship. So what do you think Satan thinks about these two things then? If he's opposed to anything that's with God, and if this is the place where we're gonna find that kind of sustenance and encouragement, what do you think he's gonna think about that? Man, he's gonna do everything in his power to keep us from getting into God's word and for gathering with other people who are trying to get into God's presence in worship because he knows we need to get separated out. And I say this because I've seen it in my own life that even if I've missed a week or two, whether it's for illness or whatever reason, I'm just not around God's people in worship, or if I've just gotten too tired to get in there and start reading the word each day, it starts to show up and I feel cranky and I feel upset and I'm more easily angered. Everything just starts to look negative because this is where I find sustenance. It's in the daily bread, the bread of life. And so Satan doesn't want us to do these things, which is why we need to really encourage each other as people of faith to get into God's word and to get into God's presence. Imagine being summoned to the king's tent. Let's say that you're out on the battlefield, you're fighting the battle, maybe you're fighting one right now, and all of a sudden you get this invitation that says, oh, you're supposed to go to the king's tent. Now, if it's a big battlefield, you might not know where the tent is located, so you look around and you start asking fellow believers, where's the king? And you just start following the fingers that are pointing. That way, go that way, okay. And you make your way through all these different tents of all the soldiers, and you see the one that's bigger than the rest, and it's got this flag flying over the top of it. That's the king's tent. And so you look at that flag, this banner, this standard that's up above the tent, and it said, God loves, and it's got your name on there. And you're thinking, God loves me? That's the banner over this tent? That's what the Bible tells us, Song of Songs 2.4. He brought me to the banqueting house or the table and his banner, which is the Hebrew word for degal, over me was love. What's the banner? That word for degal means that's the gonfalon, the flag that they would fly that has the emblem of the king. That's which represents the king. If you're fighting for that banner, that means you're fighting for the king. You're willing to lay down your life for that person, for that king. 
Sometimes there'd be a big lion on it for courage. And so his banner over me is love. I'm feasting at his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. A song we used to sing back in VBS when I was a kid. Some people may still sing it. I don't know. But he brought me to his banqueting house. That's what happens when he invites us to the king's tent and we see that banner and all of a sudden we recognize, ooh, this is no ordinary king and this is no ordinary banner. God's love is what draws me to that because when you would follow that flag, you would follow that into battle. That's what showed you what to rally around and what we as Christians are supposed to rally around is God's love because his banner over me is love and that's the love that draws us to him in the heat of battle because we know he's got our back. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. What do those words stored up mean? It means he's been planning this in advance, just like prepared the banquet table. It shows that there was forethought, preconceived action and thought on God's part, which means, you know that battle that you might be going through right now? God knew it in advance that you were gonna be in it. He knows right now that he's already started planning the victory celebration for the battle that you're fighting currently. That's an encouraging word. Because we know that we can do that and send the message to the enemy that would discourage them by saying, God's already won the battle. What am I worried about? That gives us the courage to stand firm and follow that gonfalon, follow the flag, the banner, the standard into battle. And for us, it also means that we can follow him in fighting with the world, or not with the world's tools and weapons, but with God's weapons. We can stand firm and love that enemy back. We can pray for our enemy. We can not retaliate. We can be Christ-like, like Christ was giving us in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. We can do that with confidence because God has planned in advance for this banquet. His invitation, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, come on to the banquet table and see. So how are you gonna taste that? Well, you need to get into God's word. Let me ask you this. I know my wife gets on to me sometimes because I don't eat enough. Sometimes I get busy, my brain gets you know, preoccupied on a task and I'm highly focused and I kind of forget to eat. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but I do, I forget to eat. And she'll say, honey, you need to feed your brain. You need to eat because it makes your attitude better and it gives you more energy and your brain functions better. You need to eat and you need to eat three good meals a day. Don't skip meals and things like that. Well, what would happen if I said, oh, I had a really good meal on Sunday morning. I'm good till next Sunday morning. I'm just fine. Do you think my wife is gonna let that slide? I don't think so. So if God is saying, come and taste to this banquet table and see and get nourishment for you, do you think it's gonna be just fine for us to come and get one hour worth of our sustenance on a Sunday morning and we're good for the rest of the week? No big deal. Yeah, I'm filled up. That pastor is so good. He filled me right up. Yeah, there's nothing that any pastor can give you for one hour a week that's gonna go deep enough to give you nourishment for the rest of the week. I'm here to tell you. I don't care if you're the best pastor in the world, you can't do it. He can point you in the right direction, but my job is to try to get you into the banquet table. You need to get into God's word, and that means regularly, and there's so many ways to do it these days. Our phone's got apps on it. You can put the headphones in and listen as you're driving. You can have somebody reading the word to you. There are all kinds of devotional readings galore out there. It's all there for us to feast on. Why don't we feast on that? Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
So what's on the menu? All the good things. Everything in there that's good. The Bible is talked about as being sweet as honey. Some good desserts in the Bible. But it's also the meat. It's the milk. It's sustenance. It's the daily bread. There's so many analogies to show that all this in the Bible is good for us. It's a whole fiber diet. You know, it's the whole nine yards. Everything we need for your minimum daily requirement is right there in God's word. That's what's on the menu. I'm gonna tell you about this guy named John that I met just about four weeks ago because I saw something happening in the guy he described, his Christian friend who was going through a battle of his own. What was the battle? Well, John was an atheist. And the Christian friend was trying to befriend John so that he could display Christ to him and hopefully lead him to the banquet table. But that means that they were gonna be like this. They were not gonna be completely on the same page. Why is that? Because John was an evangelical atheist. He was an atheistic evangelist, which means that he was gonna try everything he could to dismantle John or the other guy's faith. John was gonna try to just upend everything that John stood for, and so he was coming at him with everything he got. He even went and bought a paperback Bible used, not so he could read it and get nourishment for himself, but so that he could find stuff in it to use against John. I mean against, I keep using the wrong term, against the Christian friend. And so what happened? Well, the Christian friend started getting some of his friends around him to pray for John, and they said, okay, I'm in a spiritual battle right now, and I wanna be able to display Christ-likeness to my friend John, would you pray for him too? And so a lot of people started praying for John. So John, because this Christian friend started inviting John to church, after about six or seven of these invitations, John says, okay, I'm gonna go, but not to sign up or anything. He says, I'm gonna go because I'm gonna find some more stuff to use as ammo against my Christian friend. I'm gonna start poking holes in all the stuff that this pastor is gonna be preaching about. And he says, and just maybe if there's anything useful that I can take away from it, maybe there's some useful stuff there, that's cool too, but I'm not gonna sign up. And so he starts going, he accepts the invitation, he goes to church, he starts hearing this pastor talk about stuff, and he says after about two weeks, even after just two, two sermons, there were three things that started to plague him, and they were going through his mind. You know how you can't shut your brain off at night some nights? And you, you're looking at the clock, and you're going, oh, another hour went by, and I still haven't been able to go to sleep because your brain is thinking. He said, that's what it was like. The first thing that started to bother him was, he thought, I don't think that we're here by accident because the pastor had been preaching about that. He said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God created you for a purpose. And he's going, okay, if I'm gonna be intellectually honest about science, I think it's impossible for things to go up the ladder because normally things go from a state of order to a state of disorder, and I'm just finding that that's implausible. It just doesn't, it's not sitting well with me. And if we're gonna test a hypothesis, then we should test it all the way through. And yet there's this company line that all the scientists around me, they're saying that's, oh yeah, we all evolved. We came from the goo, you know, it's no big deal. He said, but I was having a struggle with that. It started to bother me. It was just kind of wheeling around in his brain. And then the second thing that started to bother him after a couple of more sermons, still going with his Christian friend who was still praying for him. He said, the pastor started using this term sin. And he said, I never used that word before, but I recognized, yeah, people do bad things. You can see it all around us. People do bad things for each other. There are people breaking into people's houses. They're stealing stuff. They're stealing money. There's people who are stealing money to buy drugs. And, you know, there's bad things that happen. So I, I get that. So he calls it sin. I guess that's okay. You know, he can call it what he wants to. But I don't have to get some sort of religious experience 
to get rid of sin. I'll just choose to be good. And so I'm gonna do that. And he made a concerted effort. He said, for two weeks, I'm gonna prove to my Christian friend that you can just make up your mind and be good. And I failed miserably, he said. For two weeks, because I realized I can't be good for two full weeks. Even if I do something that seems good to somebody else, sometimes there's an ulterior motive there because I still am gonna benefit from it and it's like I can use that as a manipulative device and so I still know that there's evil inside of me. I guess there's sin. He had to say, I'm starting to understand, yeah, I think maybe the pastor might be right in using this word sin that's inside all human beings. So that was the second thing that was plaguing him. Then the third thing, after a few more sessions at this church with his Christian friend trying to prove him wrong, and that was Jesus' death. Jesus died, and he's thinking, okay, well, the way I was raised, my dad was an Iranian, he was from Iran, and uh, he was telling us, don't go into those Christian churches because they think you're terrible people and, and you'll die. If you go to a Christian service and you walk out, you're gonna die. And so just avoid Christianity altogether. So then when he told his dad, this Iranian guy, I'm starting to go to a Christian church, he goes, well, just don't pick up any of the bad stuff. You know, he starts to mitigate that. So he's had a lot of pressure from his own father about that. He was conflicted because his father started lying at work and saying, no, I'm from Afghanistan, I'm not from Iran, because that was after the Iran hostage crisis. And then several years later, 911 happened, and then he had to say, oh no, I'm not really from Afghanistan, I'm actually from Iran. And they said, well, what else have you been lying to us about? And so he got bad for that family. And so John, who's raised in this environment, is going, yeah, this is a tough, this is a tough sell. How do I tell my dad that I'm starting to go to this church? But he, he was adamant in saying, but I'm not gonna sign up. I'm going to this church with my Christian friend, but I'm not gonna sign up. And the way he thought about because of martyrs, like the people that flew a plane into some buildings, he said, Jesus died for a great cause. I'm down with that, I'm cool with that. But the pastor kept saying, no, it's not just like a martyr dying for a great cause, it was personal. It's personal for him because he went through the whole thing about the exodus and the, the blood over the doorposts and the lentils and that those who are under the blood are covered, and then that was a foreshadowing of what Jesus did for us as the ultimate lamb who was slain for us, and his blood shed for us was paying the ransom. He redeemed us, so it's personal. He did that for people because he loves us that much, and he said that was the stuff that started to pour into his brain that he couldn't go to sleep at night because he kept looking at the clock because he's thinking, wait a minute, that's personal. That's not just dying for a great cause. If God loves me that much, then he personally is inviting me to this banquet table. And finally, he said, the big day came when he made a decision. And he said, it wasn't whistles and bells. He didn't come flying down the aisle and fall on his face and cry, you know, in the altar in front of a bunch of people. He said, I was sitting in a little Sunday school room and they were studying the Bible together, looking at a passage just like we do a lot around here. And he says, and all of a sudden, the thought came into his brain, huh, I believe this. And he said, that's the thought that changed my life forever. <laughs> and he said, I did actually walk an aisle later because it was that kind of church and they needed me to do that so they could feel good about themselves. And he said, but it was that thought, I believe this, that changed everything for me. And then I started sharing with my Christian friend, the one that I was trying to evangelize to become an atheist. I finally had to confess to him, you know, I know I've been telling you that I'm trying to get you to come over to my side, but I just admit it, I believe this stuff, I've come over to your side. And so the Christian friend was able to share with all those people who were praying for John, oh, guess what? God answered your prayers. 
And you know what that guy's doing today? He's a youth minister. And he's been taking courses in the Bible so he can become more adept at sharing God's word, but he's got a great story. And it's all just growing right out of everything that we understand about God drawing people to himself when we get into the word and we get in worship. And John's Christian friend got him into both. And something supernatural happened. Jesus declares that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, helkuos him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Remember that story where Peter's fishing all night, not caught a thing. Jesus says, caught anything? Nope. Try casting your net on the other side of the boat. And if I were Peter, I'd be going, yeah, right. Did you not hear me say that I've been fishing all night long? But he doesn't say that. At least the scriptures don't say he does. But he says, okay. He throws the net on the other side of the boat. Bang, they catch so much fish that they had to get some help to come because the net was tearing. And they're helkuosing the net. They're pulling, drawing the net into the shore. That's the same word that we're drawn to Christ. He says he wraps that net around us. He doesn't catch us by the mouth and we're flopping and going, no, no. He draws this wonderful net around us and he's just pulling us close to himself. He's helkuosing us. What a picture of a God that is so persistent in going after us so that he could get us in his net and get us close to himself. He does that. He's the one doing the drawing. None of us can force somebody to make that decision. God does the work in getting them to make that decision and say, I believe this. And then John found out later, after he'd been going to church for a few more months, that there's another big banquet. It's the ultimate banquet. It's gonna be the feast Supper, the wedding supper of the lamb, as is spoken about in Revelation. That's gonna be the consummation of everything that God's been preparing for so that all of the people who are in Christ, who are covered by the blood, will sit and feast at the banquet table because we're the bride of Christ. And so it's like a marriage supper. And he thought, I wanna go to that banquet. And I want a whole bunch of other people, even from my own country, to go there. And so he's trying to reach out to people, and he can do so because he's an Iranian, so he knows all about their customs and things. He's primed and ready for that. So here's the thing, folks. You are each personally invited by the king to dine at the king's banquet table. You see the flag, the standard over there on the left side of the picture? It looks like it's sticking out of that guy's head, but he's not. It's just, it's behind him. But you're invited to the banquet table. And the question is, have you accepted the invitation or not? And here's the thing. You can find out a whole lot more about it by feasting right here. Get into the word. Get into worship with fellow believers because that's where the food comes from. And if Satan tries to get you to avoid that, don't listen to him. Just say, not today, Satan. And get right into God's word because that's where we're gonna feast and he's gonna give us sustenance that's gonna get us right through the battles knowing that he loves us. His banner over us is love. So I want to pray for everybody who might have had some trials and they're struggling with that stuff and then we're going to worship and go out singing and praising because Satan hates it when we praise. So we're going to praise even louder today and we're going to give it to him, all right? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there's anybody who's been struggling with a trial, even maybe going through one right now, they're going to sense that you love them enough to invite them to your banquet table and they're going to respond because they're going to show up and they're going to feast on your word, and they're going to worship. And by doing that, they're going to feel like strength is just creeping right back into them again, and they can be strong enough to stand firm because you are building confidence into them because you're having a victory celebration even before the battle starts. And then if there's somebody who realizes today, 
man, I've really been avoiding Bible reading. I've been avoiding study. I've been avoiding going to church for worship. I don't know why I've been avoiding it. And I pray that you'll speak to that person and just draw them to yourself and say, but that's where you can find more of me. (laughs) That's where I'll fill you up with myself. And so you can gain confidence in that. And then, Father, if there's anybody here that they need to take that first step of faith and say, yeah, I've never received that invitation to begin with, and I recognize that he's extending that invitation to me right now. I pray that they will take a step of faith and say, God, I believe this stuff. I want to start a journey with you too. I want to be at that banquet table, not only the one now, but also that eternal one. And so show me how to live for you. Show me how to walk with Jesus, to be a Jesus follower. And I pray that you'll give that person the courage to step out, to tell somebody else, just like John told his Christian friend, and that they will start journeying together with other people who can walk alongside them and help them when they stumble now and then. And I thank you for doing that for every one of us because you're such a gracious God. We need more and more and more of you. And we thank you that you give yourself freely. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.